0: Go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel with me this morning, if you would, and let me ask you, what comes to mind when you think of the book of Daniel? This can be interactive this morning. First things that come to mind, book of Daniel is usually exciting, right? Lion's den. Den. That's a cool story. What else? What comes to mind when you think of Daniel? What's that? Resolve? Resolve? The courage? Yeah, yeah. What else? What else? You guys read Daniel before? Huh? Diet? Diet? The Daniel diet. That's that's exactly why this book was probably written and given to us, right? Yeah. So there's there's a lot of different things that come to mind when we think of the book of Daniel. We think of exciting stories, Daniel in the lion's den. Maybe uh, we think of some weird and interesting things that have been taken from Daniel, like being a vegetarian or something like that. And maybe many of you think of different prophecies because uh, the book of Daniel is filled with those. So Daniel is is one of the prophets that you're probably more familiar with than some of the others. You're more familiar, likely, with Daniel than um, Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Um, but Daniel is a key contributor to our understanding of the Bible because of because of the uh, prophecies therein, some of the key stories therein. Um, The book is interesting because it's the only book in the Old Testament that was written in both Hebrew and then parts of it are written in Aramaic. That's in part because of uh, the authorship and the location from where it was written, as we'll see soon. Uh, But it's unique in that sense. But another interesting thing is that Daniel is probably the most referred to book of the Old Testament by the New Testament authors. Now, if you're looking at, at purely specific quotations... There's not that many. I think there's six New Testament quotations of Daniel. But if you take allusions and reference and kind of echoes, places where the New Testament authors are clearly picking up ideas and themes from Daniel, um, it litters the the New Testament. It is all over the place, um, fundamentally shaping the the theology and the prophetic language that the New Testament authors use. Daniel also contains more fulfilled prophecies, than any other book of the Bible. Uh, Much of Daniel is prophecy, as we'll see. But a lot of it is prophecy that was, was near in the future, and therefore we can look back on it and see it's already been fulfilled. And it's because of that reason that many skeptical scholars will look at Daniel and say, this couldn't have been written by a man named Daniel during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius and these other people. This had to have been written way after the fact because hindsight is twenty twenty, and nobody could have known that all of this was going to happen exactly as it did. Um, so some people actually doubt the authenticity of Daniel because of how shockingly accurate and specific it is. But as readers of the Bible who trust God's word, this should actually serve to increase our confidence, shouldn't it, in God's trustworthiness? And if so much of Daniel has already been fulfilled... Shouldn't we be even more confident that the parts that are yet unfulfilled are definitely going to happen? Because Daniel's batting 1,000 to this point. Um, Obviously, speaking for God, he is truthful and accurate in all that he records. The book obviously takes its name from the author. Daniel was a young nobleman who was taken in the first deportation to Babylon in 605 BC. If you look in chapter one there, it says, in the third year of the reign of, Of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So if you remember um, sort of our Old Testament history as we've been talking through the prophets, Israel had been unfaithful, they'd split into two kingdoms, continued in idolatry, and then the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes referred to as Israel, took them into captivity, took them away, overran that nation, wiped them out. And then the southern kingdom, they lasted a little bit longer, but after a while, the Babylonians came in. And the first time they came in and conquered them, as we see here in Daniel, they took away um, some of their nobility, the best of the best. You can see Nebuchadnezzar saying, I want the best people the sharpest people, the smartest people, the most physically and mentally capable people. And I'm going to lift them out and I'm going to train them and use them and implement them in my kind of political structure. And so Daniel was part of that first deportation. That's in 605 BC. Which means, if you remember last week from Ezekiel, who was also taken at deportation, that Daniel and Ezekiel are contemporaries and they're both in Babylon, writing from Babylon. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem in Judea or in Judah writing his prophecy. So that gives you a sense of sort of the timing uh, and where Daniel is writing from. So who's Daniel writing to? Well, he's obviously writing to and for Israel, the people of God, but even more broadly, the book of Daniel is written for all the nations. We see in the book of Daniel that truth is revealed To a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. God is speaking through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's preserved for all who will hear. Declarations are made by uh, pagan rulers like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. Um, Declarations that are sent throughout the empire about God, that he is to be worshiped and feared. So this book is unlike the rest of the Old Testament in that while it does contain hope for Israel, as we'll see in a minute, it's less focused on the covenants with Israel and Israel's specific future and it's more focused on worldwide events for all the nations things that are going to affect all the people of the earth Uh, so that's kind of the audience of Daniel what about the theme I think we have a a slide for this Um, the theme for Daniel if you go to the next one is really the sovereign power and wisdom of God oh maybe skip back one maybe my file's just bad that's the problem well if, if you can find it you can find it if not I'll read it so it's not a big deal But the theme of Daniel is the sovereign power of God. God is God and no one else. God is in control. He has a plan, and he is bringing it about in his time. We see throughout Daniel that empires will rise and fall, that enemies may rage, but God preserves his people and advances his kingdom. We can see this theme emphasized in chapter 2, Daniel's song in chapter 2, verse 20. As Daniel says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Nebuchadnezzar himself, this pagan king in chapter 4, comes to recognize this truth that God is sovereign over all. Look in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34. Remember, this is a Gentile pagan ruler who's been humbled by God, and he says this He says, He says, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. He's not calling him Yahweh, the the personal covenant name of God that, that Israel used. He's referring to him as God Most High, the God over all the gods. This is an outsider looking in and recognizing who God is. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now, this is the ruler of the known world at the time saying this, recognizing God's bigger than me. He says in verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. Nobody can stop God from doing what he tries to do. And no one can say to him, what have you done? He says, that's not our job. We don't have the power to stop God, and we don't even have the place to question his plans. Um, he's not accountable to us. This is Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, recognizing this theme of the sovereign power and wisdom of God. And this is important because if you take yourself back here to when Daniel is writing, think about this. The common notion of the day among all these different nations, Egypt, Assyria, uh, the Syrians, um, Even some in Israel, it was thought that a nation's fate depended on the strength of its God. So when one nation battled against another nation, it was really that nation's God versus the other nation's God to see whose powers were greater. So the temptation might have come to some to think that Israel, who'd been wiped off the map, Judah, who'd been taken into captivity, that their God must not be very strong. Their God must be nothing. Bel, the God of the Babylonians, must be greater. Um, interesting, the same theme we see in the Exodus. All of the plagues were basically direct attacks on all the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Though these people were in bondage and in slavery to the Egyptians, God was saying, I'm stronger than all of their gods. You can trust me. We see the same truth being taught here, and these people needed it. They needed to know that their God was still in control and that he hadn't been defeated by the gods of the surrounding nations. Um, so Daniel reveals that God is still on the throne, that he's sovereign and all-powerful. Babylon did not conquer Israel's God. If you've been listening to the prophets, paying attention, you'll know that Babylon conquered because of Israel's God. Habakkuk tells us that Israel's God is going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So throughout these narratives, we see contests, as it were, between the most powerful leaders on earth and the all-powerful God. And in the prophecies, we see contests of power between these various beasts and images of horns and different things like that. But God's power is always greater and always defeats these lesser powers. His kingdom outlasts them all. So the narratives that we find in Daniel and the prophecies are meant to bolster the faith of a humbled people, the Israelites. And it's meant to put the fear of God into arrogant pagans who assumed that Israel's God must be nothing. So Daniel's theology serves to accomplish this. So the key statement, the theme, rather, for Daniel is this. God is the sovereign supreme ruler over all nations, period. God is the sovereign ruler over all nations. Therefore, and here's where the implications come, therefore his people can have faith in him and must be faithful to him. That's kind of a long theme statement, so I'll read it again. God is the sovereign ruler over all nations. Therefore, his people can have faith in him and must be faithful to him. What do we do when we have no power, when we're at the beck and call of other controlling entities, and we seem to be at the end of our options? Daniel found himself there. These three friends found themselves there. The Israelites found themselves there. But we can still trust God. He's in control. And he is powerful over all of our enemies. And therefore, we must be faithful to him, like Daniel, like the other three who stood with courage and resolve, even in the face of pressure and opposition. Uh, We must be faithful to God because we know who he is. So Daniel and his friends are examples to us of conviction and courage, even in the face of arrogant hostility. And that's always a relevant message, isn't it? That's always relevant. We need to hear that today. So the structure of Daniel. We can sort of look at the structure in two ways. Um, We can look at this book in terms of its thematic and literary structure, which you have up here. This is something that kind of Bible nerds and theology people like to call a chiasm. And I don't usually get into real deep structured stuff in in a teaching sequence. But I think this is helpful actually to see there's a little bit of parallelism going on. That if you think of these things as being numbered, that part one and part eight actually match. Sort of like bookends. And then part two and part seven, they also match. And you kind of work your way in all the way to the center. So it's almost like an hourglass that focuses in, and right at the center, you have something that is to be emphasized. So in chapter one, we see um, Israel in exile and the people of God being afflicted. But if we go to the end at chapter nine, we see a promise of return from exile. And that the Messiah is going to be afflicted. He'll be cut off. You see some kind of, some connections there with those themes. In chapter 2, we see four empires brought low by God's king. Um, you'll see, a, we see this image that Nebuchadnezzar sees in a dream. That's a prophecy. In chapter 7 and 8, we see four empires brought low by God's king in a different dream that Daniel has. These things echo each other. And we go all the way in. Likewise, chapter 3, we see a king setting himself up as God and the people afflicted. See the same thing in chapter 6. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we see parallel themes. Nebuchadnezzar, this proud king, is brought low and humbled by God. In chapter 5, Belshazzar, a pagan king, is humbled and brought low by God. And then we get all the way to the center of this sandwich, as it were, and we get to Daniel 4, 34 through 37, which we've already read. So I won't go back there. But that's Nebuchadnezzar's song of praise where he has been humbled and he recognizes who God is. So if you sort of follow the breadcrumbs, you come right to the center of this book and you find this nugget at the center that God is the God most high. No one can stop his hand. No one can question his actions. He reigns, he's supreme, and everyone should worship him. That's right at the center. So that's kind of cool to see the structure um, put together like that. And I think that structure is put there intentionally for two reasons. One is to focus us on the theme at the center, but the other is to, would have helped people to remember. uh, It's kind of a a memory device to help remember the contents of the book. So that's kind of a a very interesting thing that maybe you don't notice on your first read-through, but as you study a book like this and zoom out, you can see structures like this, kind of a literary device that's helpful for us both in remembering the content and in interpreting it. Um, But we're not going to walk through the book in that sequence. We just kind of gave the snapshot overview. You can also look at the structure of this book sequentially. Chapters 1 through 6 contain the narratives, these narrative uh, stories. We see three instances of faithful resistance by saints, uh, by Daniel and his three friends. Chapter 1, somebody mentioned diet earlier. Um, Chapter 1 is less instructive about what we should eat, and it's more so instructive about being faithful to God. Um, Even in exile, um, it's important that the people of God maintain their distinctiveness from the nations, and that they stay faithful to the word of God, the law of God. So think about it. They've lost their temple. They've lost their priests. They've lost their land. They've lost so much of their national identity as God's covenant people. And so now Daniel and these three friends have been brought into the king's house, and they're given the king's food to eat. And as they look at it, they go, our God told us not to eat some of these things. And in a statement of faith and conviction and courage, they ask permission, can we just eat some of these vegetables over here on the side and avoid and abstain from some of this food? And the guy who's in charge goes, if you guys are unhealthy, my head gets cut off, so I'm not sure about this. Daniel proposes a test, testing period. And At the end of that testing period, Daniel and his friends are healthier than the other guys. Now, does that say something about that food being better? No. It says something about the God that they serve being better than the gods that... The Babylonians serve. That's the point. So we see Daniel and his friends standing strong there. And then we see in chapter three this famous story about Nebuchadnezzar building this massive image and saying, Now listen, everyone, when the music plays, you all bow down and worship. And so again, you have an opportunity to stay faithful to God, even though you're the minority and opposition and power is all against you. And these three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they do not bow. And I love what they say when Nebuchadnezzar hears about it and brings them to him in a furious rage. In verse 14 of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, he uses their foreign names, they're named after foreign gods. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. It's like, I'm going to be merciful, I'm going to give you a second chance. But, he says, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And here's the question. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar goes, your God doesn't impress me. I conquered your country. You think if your God couldn't stop me from overrunning your country, that he's going to stop me from killing you? I don't think so. And I love their answer in verse 16. They answer and said to the king, "O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you want to throw us in. He says, well, verse 16, they're basically saying, we don't need a second chance. Our mind's already made up. So don't waste your time sending us back out and playing the music again because our mind is already made up. And he says, if this be so, if you throw us in the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They answered his rhetorical question. He wasn't looking for an answer. Who is the God who can deliver you? That's, that's a statement, not a question. But they answer and they say, well, our God is able to. And we believe he will. Verse 18, but if not, even if he chooses not to, they say, O king, know this, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. That's courage, literally courage under fire. We don't need a second chance. Our mind's made up. Our God is able to deliver us, and we believe he will. But even, as, even if he doesn't, we'd rather be faithful to him than bow to your God. So go ahead and kill us. That's a remarkable account of conviction and courage that God is to be worshipped alone. We know the story of what happens. Nebuchadnezzar throws them in the fire. They don't die. The ropes burn off, but their hair isn't singed. Their clothes don't smell like smoke. Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and he sees not three, but four. That's an amazing thing to see, that even though the people are in exile, God is with his people in exile. And if they will be faithful to him, he will be faithful to them. He will be with them in the fire. It's nothing less than a theophany, a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, with them in the fire. Awesome story. And then we find a third story of resistance. So they resist when it comes to diet. They resist when it comes to worshiping the pagan image. And then Daniel resists in chapter 6. Kind of like our politics, everybody hates each other and is jealous. And so Daniel had been promoted and exalted, and he had really climbed the ladder in in the the governmental system there because of his character, his trustworthiness, and because of God's blessing on him. And so others are jealous. They try to trip him up, and so they get the king at the time, whose name was Darius. This is after Babylon has already fallen and a new empire has risen up, uh, the Medes and the Persians, And they trick him into creating a law that anyone who worships or prays to any other god than the king um, will be punished by death for 30 days. They want to honor the king. Everybody pray only to the king. Daniel is in this habit of praying every day towards Jerusalem. And he doesn't stop his habit. He's arrested. He's brought before the king. The king realizes he's been tricked, but it's already in writing, so he can't go back and change it. And so he throws Daniel into the lion's den. And it's interesting in verse 16 of Daniel 6 the king commanded, Daniel was brought, cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. So at this point, even pagan kings are looking to God and hoping that he will show his power. And we know the story he does. Daniel spends the night with the lions, he is not harmed. Some scholars will say, Well, they must have been like, you know, full or something. But we know that's not true because the next day, All the conspirators are thrown into the lion's den, and they get torn to pieces before they even hit the ground. So it's obviously another case of God's miraculous deliverance. We see poetic justice against the conspirators. The lions were indeed hungry, but we see the one true God whom Daniel was faithful to trust and worship is able... And does he is faithful to preserve his faithful servant, so there's three instances here of faithful resistance by the saints in chapters one through six. but also in chapters one through six, we see three visions of the kings interpreted by Daniel. in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian king has a dream. We might have a picture of this if you can get to it. Um, he has a dream of this image. he doesn't know what it means. it's this statue made of different components, and he says. He knows that some of his counselors are um, kind of sketchy, and he says, "I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. You tell me what it is, and then you tell me what it means." And they go, "Oh, we don't know how to do that." And he says, "You have you know this period of time, and then you're all going to be killed." And this group included Daniel and his friends. They were among these counselors, these advisors. Daniel prays, his friends pray, and God reveals the dream and its meaning to Daniel. And Daniel tells the king what he saw. He said, king, you saw this image with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, middle, thighs made out of bronze, it had legs of iron, it had feet made out of iron mixed with clay. And then you saw this massive stone that came and smashed the whole thing and grew into a massive mountain. The king goes, how did you know that? Daniel tells him, my God has revealed it to me. It's not me. The God I serve, the God most high, has revealed the dream and its meaning. And he tells uh, Nebuchadnezzar the meaning as well. He says that each component of this statue represents different kingdoms. He says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. That's Babylon. But the chest and arms of silver is another kingdom that's going to rise up, and then so on. There's this sequence of various kingdoms that will come and overtake and overthrow uh, the previous kingdom. It's a tale as old as time that the strong survive. And, you know, it's always trying to play king of the mountain. But eventually, there's going to come a stone that smashes the whole thing and grows into eternal kingdom that is never overthrown. This cycle is going to stop one day, and that stone represents Christ and the kingdom of God, that one day, this cycle of different powers taking their place is going to stop because God is going to install his king and establish his kingdom. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar that that's the meaning of this dream. Um, In chapter 8, we don't have time to go through all of these, but in chapter 8, there's another dream of a ram and a goat with big horn and and little horns, and they're fighting and taking over. That's another prophecy about kingdoms that are going to rise and fall. And then in chapter 9, we see Daniel's prayer. It's interesting, Daniel, if you turn to chapter 9, is reading the book of Jeremiah. So apparently, there was copies sent to Babylon from Jerusalem, where Jeremiah was writing, and Daniel is reading. And he says in verse 2, he says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He's reading and he says, wow, God said we'll be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And Daniel does the math. He's an old man at this point. And he realizes that the end of this 70-year period is coming soon. But as he looks around, he doesn't see a lot happening. He doesn't see any change. Um, he still sees hard hearts among the people. He still sees um, a totally decimated you know, political power in Jerusalem. Um, in fact, they've been you know, totally wiped out at this point. And so he's praying, God, keep your word. God, raise up your people once again. He's praying for this. And then God gives Daniel this amazing vision. Um, the angel Gabriel actually comes and speaks to him, and at the end of chapter nine, he gives him this prophecy of seventy weeks. We don't have to go, have time to go through all this. Um, the ESV says seventy weeks. We'll give just a quick word on this. It's really seventy sevens, so groups of seven, which can be weeks or it can be groups of years. You know, a week is a group of days, but it's the seventy sevens. And to summarize very briefly, um, God reveals to Daniel in answer to his prayer. Um, that it's going to be about 49 years, 7 times 7, till the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. With Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, with Cyrus's permission, those things will be rebuilt. God is going to keep his promise. But then he tells him about 62 weeks until the anointed one is cut off. That's actually speaking to anointed one is Christ, Messiah, speaking about the crucifixion. And then he speaks of this final week, which is still future, in which a dictatorial ruler will make and then break a covenant with worshipers of God and will make everything desolate, but then will be brought to an end. And that final week is still future. So some of this has already happened. Some of it hasn't happened yet. And we find all of this in Daniel chapter 9. And then in chapters 10 through 12, sort of the end of the book, we see some additional visions where Daniel, who again, remember, had arrived in Babylon in his teens would have seen these visions towards the end of his life. He's probably 85 years of age. And this section, chapters 10 through 12, deals mostly with events during the coming Greek empire. Now, when we read our Bible, we finish the Old Testament, and then we turn the page to the New Testament, but there's a big gap of time in between, several hundred years. And during that time, you know, there's the Greek empire that rises up. Um, and the temple was profaned. There was a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who persecuted the Jews, slaughtered um, thousands of them, and actually sacrificed a pig in the temple to desecrate it. Um, and there was, it was a horrible time uh, for the Jews, and much of this is prophesied in Daniel. But then there was this revolt that raised up, the Maccabean Revolt. Um, that's why people celebrate Hanukkah those who are Jewish, is to celebrate some of the things that happened during that intertestamental period. Daniel speaks to all of this, Daniel chapters 10 through 12. But while it speaks of great tragedy and suffering and persecution for the Israelites, this section also holds out a clear promise of hope. I want you to look at chapter 12, verses one through three. Speaking prophetically to the future, Daniel writes this, recording the words of God. It says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, Who has charge of your people? And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. This time of great trouble, unlike any other time, refers to the future tribulation that is coming. And it says in verse 2 And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's a prophecy here of resurrection. And rest for the saints, but judgment for the wicked. It says in verse 3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is a prophecy of good news and hope for the end. That God is going to raise up the dead that he's going to judge the wicked and the righteous will be exalted. There is hope even when Israel feels like they're getting you know, kicked around like a football between all these different um, empires. Even though there is a great tr- time of trouble and tribulation and suffering that is coming, in the end, God's plan will be accomplished and righteousness will be established. So that's a little bit of a summary of the content of the book of Daniel. Um, A couple key emphases just to bring out, just as you read through this, look for these things. Look for the sovereignty of God over man. We see this again and again and again and again. Look for that sovereignty. Look for the theme of pride and humility. Um, If you go back to that little sandwich that we looked at, um, all the way in the center of that chiasm, you have a man named Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the known world, who stands and takes credit for everything that has happened. Um, We see this in... Um, chapter 4 at the end of chapter 4 in verse 30 Nebuchadnezzar says is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty and while the words were still in the king's mouth there fell a voice from heaven "O king Nebuchadnezzar to you it is spoken the kingdom has departed from you at this point, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had, that Daniel had interpreted, comes true. He loses his mind, goes insane, and for seven years is, lives out in the wilderness eating grass like an animal. His hair grows crazy long. He has long fingernails. He's insane. Um, God humbles the arrogant king, just like he said he would do. He had had this dream about a massive tree that all the birds of the earth come and, and roost in its branches, and everyone sits in its shade and eats its fruit, and that refers to him as this massive king in his kingdom. But then the, king, the, the tree is chopped down, and that refers to the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. It comes true. Look for that theme. We see it happening with Nebuchadnezzar, and he is humbled but at the end, God restores, mercifully restores his mind, and Nebuchadnezzar humbly worships God. He learns his lesson. Um, likewise, we see that with Belshazzar, um, the next uh, king, who's actually, maybe actually two kings after Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is still around, but this king has a great feast in chapter 5, and he intentionally brings out the, the vessels of worship that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem, vessels of gold and silver, and uses them for his, his fine dining for his feast. He's intentionally doing this to spite Israel's God, to mock Israel's God in his pride and his arrogance. And he sees all of a sudden in his, at the end of this drunken feast a hand writing on the wall. You guys have heard that phrase? We've seen the writing on the wall. You know, it means that we know what's going to happen. Well, there's handwriting on the wall. They bring Daniel in and he interprets it basically to mean that your days are numbered and judgment is coming and it's going to happen. And before that night is even over, the next kingdom comes in, Belshazzar is killed, and Babylon falls, and the Medes and the Persians take up occupancy in, in uh, the, the, um, the, the castle there, in, in the palace. So we see this theme of pride and humility. Pride and humility. It's an important theme in Daniel. And while we see the pride of pagan kings, we also see the humble faith of men like Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. They humbly obey God, even though it costs them. So pride humility is a key theme. Uh, we also see the theme and the emphasis of the ultimate triumph of God's king and God's kingdom. Throughout all the the, um, visions, all the prophecies, we see this promise that God's kingdom is going to come and it will end the cycle and it will last forever. and God's king will reign forever. So that's a comforting um, and exciting theme we see. And then lastly, God's faithfulness to those who are faithful. He preserves Daniel. He preserves his three friends. He preserves the nation, even in captivity. And he will bring them out again. God is faithful. So we have a lot to learn from Daniel. Because like Daniel, we as believers today are, in a sense, exiles. We are not at home here. And we're not in charge here. Our citizenship, Philippians 3.20 says, is in heaven and we are awaiting the return of our king. We're not the ones holding power in this world. And we often face opposition and hostility from those in power. But... We need to know, we need to remember that God is faithful, that he is over the rise and fall of kings and empires and presidents and Supreme Court justices and armies and the weather, climate change, all of it. God is sovereign over all of it. And he is with us, even though we are strangers and sojourners in exile. And we need to know that his kingdom will triumph. So this is to be our firm conviction and it forms the basis for us to be courageous. We are not to be courageous because we, we grab ourselves by the bootstraps and stand up strong and puff out our chest and say, I have enough backbone and you can't make me do what you want me to do. No, our, our conviction comes from our confidence in God. That is the source of Christian courage. That's the source of our, our holy defiance against the whole current of our society. It's our faith in God and our fear of God. That is the source. So we need to see that. This is to be our conviction. It forms the basis of our courageous obedience as we wait on our king, as we wait on God's timing, as we wait expectantly for his kingdom to triumph, as we wait in hope of resurrection and eternal life, that which we see promised in the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is to be read so that it can inspire courage, so that it can instill hope, so that it can compel humility, and so that we can exalt God's glorious power and gracious plan. So my prayer is that the book of Daniel will have that effect on our hearts as we sort of dip our toes into it, give a quick overview, and as you take it up and read it yourself, I hope it will have that effect on your heart. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you revealed to Daniel, what's been recorded for us. We thank you for the helpful examples of courageous obedience. And Lord, I pray that we would go from here today um, truly believing that you are sovereign over all, that we would not tremble or be intimidated as we look at the powers that be in the world today, um, whether they be physical, political, even spiritual powers, We know that your kingdom rules over all and you will win in the end. We thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus, the anointed Messiah, who was cut off, who suffered for the sake of your people so that our sins could be forgiven. We thank you for keeping those promises and we pray that you would increase our faith in the promises yet to come, promises of resurrection and restoration and hope and eternal life. So we praise you, God, for your word and ask that you'd help us to be faithful readers, wise interpreters, and obedient listeners. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.